I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 1, which is on page 980, if you have one of the Bibles uh, in the chairs in front of you. Philippians chapter 1. As you uh, are opening your Bibles, let's uh, bow our heads once again and pray for the reading and for the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so very much, and we, we need your grace to help us to love you more and more. We are thankful, God, that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have given us the light of God's of your word, of God's word, the word of God. Help us to hear it today as it is preached. And Lord, we pray that it would not just be a knowledge sort of hearing, but that the Holy Spirit would apply the word of God to our hearts and minds in those particular ways that we need to change, that we need to grow. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my power that your love may abound more and more. Sorry, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's so fun to start a new sermon series. Here we are in the book of Philippians, which many of us have read many times throughout our lives. And yet I'm praying that all of us, if this is your first run through it or your hundredth run through this book of Philippians, that God would speak powerfully to all of us over these next few months as we go verse by verse through this precious epistle. It was written to the church at Philippi. Philippi would have been the very first European city that Paul preached the gospel to. It was an important city right along a major road. It was built for the military. It was used for trade. And the religion in Philippi was very syncretistic. In other words, there were tons of different religions there. Many, many temples to different ancient Greek gods and even temples to a couple of Egyptian gods and much more. And Paul arrived there during his second missionary journey. So if you're wanting to read some of the backstory of Philippians, you'll find it in Acts chapter 16. 
And let me just highlight a couple of things that happen in Acts chapter 16, because there are some famous stories that come out of those first few days with Paul at Philippi. The first thing that happened to him is that he intended to go somewhere else. He was with a couple of the other apostles, and they were on their way, and yet in the middle of the night, Paul had a dream uh, where somebody from Macedonia, which is this big region where Philippi is a major center, that the Macedonian man sort of comes in the middle of the night in a dream to Paul and says, you got to go here. Let me just read this to you from Acts chapter 16. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them, so Passing on Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so Luke, the author of Acts, is remembering back to that time when Luke wakes up in the morning and Paul has got a story for him about a vision that he had had. And they all felt, yeah, let's do this. Let's head on to Macedonia instead of where we originally intended. So the first thing that happens is they go into the city and Paul's whole uh, Paul's whole process when he went into a place to plant a new church and to evangelize was to go into the synagogues, to the Jews first and then to the Gentile. So he goes in there, but there wasn't a synagogue, and he had heard that there were some Jewish people that gathered by the river. So he goes down there, and it turns out it's a group of Jewish women, and he preaches the gospel to them, and one of their names was Lydia, the lady that we named our daughter after. And she heard the gospel, and she loved the gospel, and so her and her entire house were saved. And uh, then she insisted that the apostles come and stay with her while they're there for a few days church planting. So that was the first thing that happened in Philippi is the conversion of this precious lady, Lydia. Then what happens is Paul's walking through town and this slave girl uh, who was demon possessed was following them around and kind of harassing them. And we're told that Paul was annoyed by her, which is so interesting Is it appropriate for an apostle to be annoyed? I'm glad to see that he was. Makes me feel a little bit more normal. And so here we are in Acts 16, 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. So he he does an exorcism as an expression of kind of losing his temper on this uh, slave girl. Well, so what happens is she was a slave that was possessed And her owners used to make a lot of money off of her because she would have all kinds of insights into the spiritual realm. So now all of a sudden, her slave owners realize they can't make any money off of her anymore. She doesn't have a demon anymore. And so they can't make any money, and they get upset about this. And they go to the city magistrates, and they say, look, these guys are causing trouble. Well, the result of this is this huge kind of mob scene that results in Paul and the other guys being... Uh, Their clothes are ripped off and they get beaten and they get tossed into jail. And then that leads to another very famous story where in the middle of the night, we're told that Paul is sitting there with his boys and they're singing songs and hymns. It's about midnight and they're singing songs and hymns. They're having a great time there in prison. And all of a sudden there's an earthquake. It says that even the foundations of the jail were shook and fallen apart. All of a sudden, everybody's chains fall off. It's such an intense earthquake. Everybody's chains fall off. All the doors are open. Now, the jailer assumes that that's going to mean that everybody has escaped. And this is his 
role. This is his job to do that. So he gets ready to, to commit suicide, to take his own life because this was his role. He was supposed to take care of it and he's assuming everybody's gone. But Paul and the other guys realize, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, we're all here. We're all here. And the jailer can't believe this. I mean, how is that possible? These guys that you could have escaped, you could have gotten out and you didn't. How do you explain that? And so he asks the, that famous phrase. He says, what must I do to be saved? He's so impressed with these guys, and presumably he's in charge of the jail, so he's been hearing them sing and preach all night long and stuff like this. And so now these guys are the real deal. So the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And they answer him, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's exactly what happened. This dude and his whole household become Christians middle of the night. Well, the next day, everybody wakes up, and the city magistrates say, okay, let those guys go. And Paul says, no, we don't want to go. Because we are Roman citizens and you beat us and imprisoned us without a trial. You treated us like we were foreigners, but we're actually Roman citizens. And so we're not going to go. And so the city magistrates got afraid all of a sudden. They realized they had done something illegal. And so it says that they apologized to them. In verse 38, they were afraid. And when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So it was a really interesting exchange there where Paul was like, you don't treat me like that, man. And uh, so eventually they have him leave. And that was how the church was planted in Philippi. An amazing story. Uh, Just a few little people there probably gathered in Lydia's house or certainly somebody that Lydia knew. And uh, a little while later, Paul ends up going. It's uh, chapter 20 of Acts. Spends a little more time. We're not told how long. Spends some more time with the church at Philippi. Paul was actually not at Philippi for very long. He never lived there. But he just had a few very intense experiences there at Philippi. So here we are in uh, chapter 1. And we are going to tackle verses 1 through 6 this morning. And I'd like to really begin at verse 2. The first verse there tells us that the letter is from Paul and Timothy, and they are servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Uh, So basically what Paul is doing there is he's sending this letter to the overseers and deacons, leaders of the church, as representatives of the church. Presumably they yanked out his letter and read it during a church service, which would have been the first time the book of Philippians was preached during a church service. Kind of cool. But then we come to verse 2. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we're studying the Bible, sometimes those introductions can be skipped over. We think, oh, he's just being polite. He's just tossing off. This is what everybody does, you know, at the beginning of a letter. But those are two very important words to Paul. We see that word grace and we see that word peace appear in many of his writings. Grace to you and peace. What he's wanting, what he's telling them is, I want lots of grace in your life. And what I'm hoping from the bottom of my soul is that you'd have lots of peace and lots of grace in your life. And so I think that'll be the title of our sermon series here for the next few months is Grace and Peace, a study of Philippians. And I think that's a beautiful thing to say. If you're greeting someone or if you're saying goodbye to someone to somehow work those words grace and peace into it, I I just hope you're going to have lots of grace and peace in your life. Now, grace is a word uh, that has to do with just good things and blessings and favor. But of course, Paul adds more to it. We see grace all the way through Paul's letters. It's central to his understanding of theology and salvation. 
It begins with God's grace toward us, that, he, that God sent Jesus Christ to save sinners, not by works so that no one can boast, as we're told in the book of Ephesians. And then it continues with grace toward others, blessing other people who haven't earned it. These ideas, grace from God given to us, and then we give grace to each other. These are central to how Paul understands theology and what we ought to do in response to that theology. He wants people to understand grace. He wants people to enjoy grace. He wants people to give each other grace. Uh, And then also peace. Peace can mean a lot of different things. Uh, specifically here, Paul is referring to people getting along with each other and enjoying each other. It has to do with wholeness in relationships. Uh, And this is also a major theme in Paul's writing, and and it's going to become a major theme of this particular book. Uh, If you have read through it this last week, you know that a major emphasis of the book of Philippians is talking about relationships of Christians with Christians, the kind of love and peace that needs to happen there. Now, the Philippians were known for their strong relationships. The Philippians were basically the opposite of the Corinthians, okay? The Corinthians were known for, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. So, so the Corinthians were a mess, and they were a big stress in Paul's life. Uh, when Paul writes letters to them, he says he does it with tears, and his visits, he tells us, are painful to Corinth, Second uh, Corinthians 2, 1. When he's in Corinth, he tells us, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, that he feels fear and much trembling. So the Corinthians were not really a, a real blessing to, to Paul, and the Philippians are a different story. The Philippians are the opposite of the Corinthians, Which is why Paul, when he thinks of them, thinks of them with gratitude and joy. We see that here in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If you have a different translation of the Bible, that's a really hard verse to translate, so... Um, you might need to take a second there to read it in your own translation. But basically, Paul is thankful uh, that God did cool stuff in Philippi. That's basically what's happening here. As Paul thinks back on what has happened in Philippi, and as he far away is thinking about Philippi, the overwhelming primary thing that happens in his heart is that he's just really thankful of what, what God has done there. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Now, he starts his letter to the Romans in the same way. He says in Romans 1, verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Very similar statement. He even says something similar to the Corinthians, the wild, wacky Corinthians. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, he does not add joy to that, (laughs) okay? When he talks about the Philippians, he said, making my prayer with joy, and that is not the kind of prayer that he has for the Corinthians, but that gratitude and that thankfulness for what God has done among that group of people is the primary thing that Paul tells us he prays about and thinks about when he thinks about those churches. And it's because Paul knows that salvation comes from God. In fact, that, that's what it means to get saved. That's what it means to be saved. It means that God saves people. In addition to the fact that Paul knows the backstory here at Philippians, we just reviewed a bit of it from uh, Acts chapter 16, but Paul knows even the littler type things and knows what people's faces look like and what it was like to talk to people and all the little conversations that led up to a little church being planted there 
in Philippi. So he tells us over and over that he thanks God for working like that. I'm just so thankful to God that he did that in this little town in the midst of demon possession and getting beaten and the earthquake and getting tossed out of town, all these kinds of things that happen. And yet God put a church in that place that is still growing and thriving in a blessing. So Paul is thankful. And he tells, he tells us over and over in his letters to different churches that he's thankful. I'm thankful for what God did there. And I'm thankful for what God did there. Um, you know, God doesn't have to save people. Uh, God doesn't need to build his church. He does it out of love. He does it out of grace. And he does it in a heroic way. And when he does, he is worthy of praise and honor. Salvation is something that God does. In fact, in Acts 16, at the conversion of Lydia, we are told the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's Acts 16, 14. And even Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples in John 6, 29, he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So it is not only uh, at the beginning of our relationship with God that God does it, but it is also throughout our relationship with God that God does it. Notice down in verse 6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is thankful for what God has done, And Paul has a certain confidence to the point that he's even able to be thankful for what God will do among the people at Philippi. Uh, And there's a paradox there, which we're going to explore in chapter 2 when Paul says, work out your faith, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good pleasure. That's a paradox. It's fascinating, and we'll talk about it in a couple of months. There certainly are choices and works that are involved with true faith. But here, Paul is focused on his gratitude for stuff that God does. God saves people. And God doesn't just save us by making us pray the sinner's prayer. But God saves us in such a way that brings us safely through the valley of the shadow of death all the way to his eternal state. So Paul's thankful. He's thankful. But he also feels joy, and that's the add-on here. Paul didn't know the Romans all that well, so he doesn't talk necessarily about joy in that context. And he did know the Corinthians, and so he does not talk about joy in that context either. But with the Philippians, his relationship with the Philippians is just so close and so precious uh, that he talks about the joy that he has when he prays for them. Uh, Paul had to leave Philippi really quickly on that first visit. You heard the story. He returns in chapter 20, uh, verse 2. It says he gave them much encouragement, but we're not told how long he was there, probably weeks. But he never lived there. And once he left, I mean, he was really gone. This wasn't a time where there were cars and airplanes or Skype or texting and email and so on. I mean, when a dude's gone, he's gone. But even from a distance, the relationship was, was close. I think that's very interesting, very special. The relationship was one of mutual concern and responsibility. And if you don't write anything down here this morning, that's what I hope you would write, maybe in the margin of your Bible there as you're figuring this out and and trying to make notes. Their relationship was one of mutual concern and responsibility. It went both ways between them. Paul was concerned for the Philippians, obviously. So he stayed in touch Planted the church, then he later stays in touch. He keeps praying for them. He visited them whenever he could. Uh, Even from a distance, he felt responsible for them. He's in a totally different part of the world, and he's still thinking about them uh, as 
is, is I'm responsible for them. I care what's going on there. I need to get involved with, what, with what's going on there. But that kind of thinking went both ways. It wasn't just Paul, you know, the great apostle reaching down from on high to these people. Uh, the Philippians felt responsible for Paul. Look down in verse 12. Uh, we will be there in a few weeks here. But in verse 12, he's reassuring them that he's okay. Even though he's in prison at this point, probably in Rome, even though he's in prison, he's reassuring them that he's okay. Verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So again, we'll get there in a few weeks and study that paragraph in depth. But the point is that the Philippians were worried about Paul. And so Paul sends this letter, which we now call Philippians, in large part because he knows they're worried about him and he wants to reassure them that he's okay. Now, how do we know that he knows that they're worried? And the answer is this guy Epaphroditus. See, what happened is the people in Philippi found out that Paul was in prison and they decided, we've got to send somebody out there. So they sent uh, Epaphroditus to go check on him and make sure that he was okay. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 14, uh, he says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. That's in chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, uh, so, and that's interesting. We know that Paul was a tent maker, so he could take care of himself. He could make his own money whenever he needed to, like in Corinth, where the relationship between Paul and the church was so dysfunctional because the Corinthians were so dysfunctional, he wouldn't let them give him any money. He's like, I'll take care of myself because I don't basically want to give you one more thing to be upset at me about. And so he wouldn't even let them uh, give him any money. But Philippi was different. Many other churches were different. When they heard that Paul needed something, they sent it to him. And this was an expression of their close relationship with each other, their mutual concern and responsibility. So in verse 16 there of chapter 4, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Later uh, in verse 18 there, he says, I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So that's how Paul knew what was going on in Philippi. And that's how Paul knew that the Philippians were worried about him. And that's how Paul knew that the Philippians cared about him and loved him. Is they found out that Paul was in prison. So they said, we got to send somebody out there. And we got to get a care package going on here too. What's he going to need? He's going to need some blankets. He's going to need some cash. Probably want some books, right? So let's get this stuff together. Epaphroditus, you're leaving tomorrow morning. And go. So Epaphroditus gets over there. Epaphroditus ends up getting sick, so Paul sends him back. But it's this close relationship that happens uh, and this mutual concern. And this kind of thing goes all the way back to the first day that they met. You remember as soon as Lydia becomes a Christian, she's like, oh, you guys got to come stay at my house for a while. Some churches treat their pastors a little bit like employees or like a piece of property, which is how Paul was treated at Corinth. Uh, we will make you miserable unless you do exactly what we want you to do. Uh, some pastors treat their congregations like consumers. I don't really know any of y'all's names as long as we can cram as many people in this building as we possibly can. 
But other churches have a close relationship with their pastors, current and past. A relationship of mutual concern and responsibility. The pastor is thinking, I love these people. I would die for these people. I love being with them. And at the same time, the congregation is thinking, this guy is a spiritual blessing to us. He taught us about Jesus, so we are going to keep taking care of him. The remarkable thing is that that continued even after Paul left. We're still taking care of each other. I don't care how far apart we are, but God put us together. We're friends. We're always going to be friends. There is going to be another dinner that we're going to sit down and have together because we love each other. And Paul calls this in verse 5 of chapter 1. So we're back in our passage here this morning. Uh, Verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul calls this partnership in the gospel. You see that in verse 5? Partnership in the gospel. That is the thing that held their relationship together. It's the gospel. The Philippians get what Paul is doing. They get missions. And so when he leaves, they're, they're saying, go, 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 go. Go do in Rome what you did here. Go do in Ephesus what you did here. Go do in Thessalonica what you did here. Go do it in Athens. Sometimes we think about Paul as the great lone ranger apostle because he planted so many churches totally self-sufficient just a crazy church planter doesn't need anything or anybody Uh, but in reality we see that paul was able to do some pretty crazy stuff because people like the philippians had his back they kept in touch so they knew what he needed when they found out what was going on they were excited about it or they're grieved by it and they're sending whatever he needs and when he gets into trouble they even send someone they're literally there when he's in prison far away in Rome. So this relationship was about mutual concern and responsibility built around partnership in the gospel. And the result of all of that is joy. Joy. Paul is a long way away and he's thinking about the Philippians. You guys are awesome. I keep boasting about you to other churches. He mentions the Philippians in other letters. You need to be a little more like the Philippians. Listen to some of the stuff that's going on there. And the Philippians are thinking, you're doing awesome, Paul. There's a church planted at Thessalonica. That's awesome. And now he's in Athens. That's awesome. Go, go, go and make disciples. So all of this, this relationship is the context of Paul's prayer. This prayer that bursts out of him there in the first paragraph of Philippians. This is the context of Paul's prayer. You can imagine him there in prison. If any of you have been in prison, uh, you know that there's a lot of time of sitting around. And you can imagine that there's a lot of time sitting around. So what does Paul do when he's sitting around? He prays. And if you're a good mom, a good dad, a good grandparent, a good pastor, when you've got sitting around time or waking up in the middle of the night time or whatever it is, you're praying for the people that you're responsible for, the people that you love. So weird for me when my grandparents died. My grandparents on my dad's side were godly people uh, involved with church planting themselves back in the 1950s. Uh, They loved the Lord, and they constantly told me that they were praying for me. In fact, as they got older and their lives got smaller, their house got smaller and so on, so they're living in a kind of an apartment now instead of the big house they had there. Um, You know, they would grab other people, their neighbors and stuff, to pray for me. And so I'd come home from college, and they'd say, you got to come across the hall here to meet our friend because she pretty much knows you because she prays for you all the time. She's always praying for me, and it kind of gave me the willies when they died because i you know because they were praying for me all the time made me nervous that all of a sudden these people that are boots on the ground praying for me constantly were not doing that anymore you know that's what good leaders do 
And that is what Paul does for the Philippians. He says, verse 3, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of, prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. You remember in our last sermon series, Moses interceding for the Israelites. The golden calf disaster was a long narrative of Moses praying to God and interceding for people. And this is a godly thing to do. It's not just a human thing to do. It is a godly thing to do. Listen to this in Romans 8. The spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What does that mean? That means that even God prays for us. Have you ever thought about that? That's kind of weird, right? Even God prays for us, which must mean that prayer really matters. Prayer really matters. Paul prays for the Philippians. The Philippians pray for Paul. Uh, you know, Paul is asking for prayer in his epistles so that he'll have opportunities to talk about Jesus. And when he has those opportunities, that he'll answer clearly and accurately as he ought to. And so they're praying for him in that way, and he's praying for them. Um, sometimes we think about prayer Sort of like uh, if you're on one side of a dining room table and there's a candle on the other side and it's, got a, and it's lit and you're on the other side of the table and you're trying to blow it out from way across the table. So you send out this prayer and you're hoping it'll have some effect and you try and you try and it's like this candle you're trying to blow out. And I don't think that is the right way to think about prayer. We're not totally sure what kind of a connection we have here and we're just hoping that it has some effect, but it's this weird spiritual realm and because of that, we actually don't pray very often because we're not really sure how it works. We need to get closer to the candle. We're not closer to the candle. And so we might get frustrated. But prayer is much more like, let's say there's a big old boulder in your backyard that has got to be moved. And so you get out there and you're digging around the edges and you sweat and move and push that thing over to the edge. Or maybe like planting seeds in your backyard and landscaping. I think prayer, as far as illustration goes, is much more like landscaping and the hard work of it, saying, we got to move this over there. And so we're praying and we're praying. And those prayers have an effect. But those prayers have got to be informed and sustained. We can't just think, oh, I'm going to toss off one little blow here and hope that it has some effect. But prayer is important. We see biblical leaders all through the Bible praying for the people that they're responsible for to the point that even God prays for us for the stuff that we don't know to pray for. It has got to be sustained. We pray for people when we know what they need and we pray often and we pray over and over. So here we have this beautiful introduction to the book of Philippians. As I think about the relationship that Paul had with the Philippians, um, this is what I think I have had with you. And this is the kind of relationship that I hope to continue having with you. Um, most of you know that we are going to be going out of the mission field, and this isn't a goodbye. We're going to be here for quite a few more months. Uh, but my heart was bursting as I was reading about the relationship that Paul had with the Philippians here and this mutual responsibility and concern that they had for each other. I hope that that is a description of what we can have together through the decades. In 11, 11 years here, there have been times of fear in, and much trembling with you as your pastor. There have been times where our relationship has been a little bit more like Corinth. And, uh, but my overwhelming experience 
has been watching God do really interesting things in me and in you during these years that we have had together. That's the overwhelming memory. That's the overwhelming flavor of what happens here. And I think the only reason that that Corinth flavor never happened to Paul and the Philippians is because he just wasn't there for very long. But relationships are complicated and complex. You go through ups and downs. Uh, But my experience here at Cornerstone has been one of joy. And I hope that because of that and because of our partnership in the gospel, we can become friends and continue to be friends for many years. I have worked hard through these 11 years to preach the word clearly and accurately and to do things behind the scenes to protect you from all kinds of harmful people and bad theology and demonic attack. And I've tried to be a decent man. And in return, you have taken care of me. You have taken care of my family. Uh, You have been gracious and generous and good to us to the point that my children enjoy being pastor's kids. And you know how rare that is? My children love being pastor's kids. When we told them that I wasn't going to be a pastor anymore, that uh, created quite a pause and a lot of thought among the kids because that's how they see themselves, and they love that. And uh, it's because of the way that you have, have treated us. It's because this has been a beautiful place for us uh, to raise our family. It is remarkable to us, and we've told this story to many, ti- many times to many people outside of Cornerstone, how gracious you were a couple of weeks ago when we made this announcement that we would be leaving. And uh, we weren't quite sure how people would respond. And, of course, there was a little bit of a freak out there for a couple of days. But, uh, but again, the overwhelming thing that happened is we're sad because we love you, but we're really excited about what God is doing in, in your life and about what God has called you to do was the overwhelming response, which sounds a lot like Philippi, doesn't that? It sounds like Philippi, which means God's doing something here, which means God is working among us and among you, and he has blessed you, and he's doing really cool things, and he continues to do really cool things, blessing you by providing Pastor Mike for years to come. I'm so glad, uh, if I may be quite honest, that I didn't leave five years ago when things just weren't a lot of fun. Uh, if you remember back then, but we persevered together. And uh, the result is that I will always be able to look back on this time with joy. I will always be able to think back on you with pride. Um, And we will visit when we can, and uh, we'll pray for you, uh, and hope that many years of partnership in the gospel will result in the strengthening of God's church, both here in Auburn and also among the Muslims who are so disastrously lost and need to hear a message of grace and peace, as you have heard. Let me close with this from Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's ever happened before. Would you please stand with us? Be more careful than I was.